Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to The Water Zone Show this evening. And a pleasant good afternoon and evening for everybody across the country. And this is The Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Davies, and we are the host of The Water Zone Show. Hope everybody's having a, uh, a good week. Chris, how are you doing today? You doing well back there, buddy? Doing fine. Thanks very much, Rob. Hope you're doing a have, uh, having a great week to do, uh, too. Also, let you know, an unusually cool day here in Southern California. Barely got into the low 80s today, which is extraordinary. It could be 20 to 25 degrees hotter, so unusual for sure. Uh, it's 96 right now. And uh, it was about 98 a little earlier ago, but uh, it's nice. Uh, they always say it's going to rain every single night, but there has been, but not where I live by the mountains here. It's, it's out in the main part of Phoenix uh, is, is raining pretty bad. So um, it should be over tonight, So, uh, but it's still beautiful here. Sunny skies, and, and I'm enjoying it. And I would like to bring in the purveyor of Maven's Notebook, that wonderful lady who knows everything about water in California and other places, Miss Chris Austin. Chris, welcome. Hey, how you doing, guys? Hey, welcome back, Chris. We missed you last week. Yep, yep, and I had some other things. But nothing, you know, always important to talk about water. Yeah, and you know, that that those rains you're talking about, Rob, you know, those those are the monsoons that help make up a lot of Arizona's water supply. You know, oh, big uh, news that they, that there's a shortage on the Colorado River, but uh, and that is a, a big chunk of Arizona's water supply, but but certainly not all, um, by by far not all. And uh, these monsoons are bringing the water that the state depends on. So yeah, yeah I can well, say we 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 charge our phones at night. We leave them on, and all night long, two o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, uh, both our phones go off about these warnings for uh, floods and and and, and windstorms and all kinds of stuff. But we haven't really been hit that. Uh, how's California, uh, Mr. Davy? Is it any uh, any other rain due there or no? No, no rain inside. I don't think we got a couple. You know, we when we get the night. Early morning low clouds, which is a typical weather pattern here. Sometimes you get a little bit of misting and drizzle, but nothing, no rain. But for you, the monsoon's not coming soon, so they're mon late for you. <laughs> Everything's a been a little bit different. But, I mean, it's bringing much-needed water, and that's part of the hydrology of, of Arizona. Now, does it put a dent in the drought? Well, not really. But, hey, water is water, right? And when it comes from Mother Nature, we're very happy for it. We'll take it. Yes, yep. exactly. And so the what's going on in the state stays safe. Yeah, what's going on in the state drought-wise? I mean, just you, know, you just listen to the news every day here, Chris, and it's something this and something that. Save water, mandatory this. Northern California especially. And then all the fires. I mean, what's the latest? Well, the big news, I think, is, since the last time we talked, was that uh, the Fed declared a shortage on the Colorado River. It's something they talk, we've been talking about for years, and it's something that there is a plan set up for 
but the levels in Lake Powell and Lake Mead are dropping, and so there are some cutbacks coming. Uh, interestingly, the way it works out is uh, the cuts are going to Arizona and Nevada and not yet to California because of the way the water, the water rights work. But there could be cuts to California coming as soon as 2024 if the hydrology doesn't improve. And there's really no signs that the hydrology is going to improve. So, you know, we can all be hopeful, you know, and we're all looking to the next winter, right? Um, and they're saying the next winter looks to be a La Nina, which has a tendency to mean a drier, a drier winter. So... There's really no reason to be optimistic that, you know, we're going to be out of this drought anytime soon. <clears throat> well, the last two La Ninas that were coming, that uh, uh, El Ninos, rather, that were coming, were supposed to happen, and they didn't. So maybe the La Ninas won't happen, and we'll get an El Nino instead. Yeah, yeah, and you never know. Wacky, wacky weather patterns out there. Um, I think... The way it works in statistically is I think the El Ninos are kind of a crapshoot in the sense that, you know, we like to think that that means it's going to be wet. But, but when you look at the actual statistics, it's about 50-50 whether an El Nino is going to mean a wet year for California or a dry year. Because sometimes it can be an El Nino, but the water can you know, the storms can be pushed into Texas, yeah. and it can be a dry year for California, right? So an El Nino is, is, a, is pretty much a crapshoot. But I think the La Nina statistically tends to mean drought, more, drought more so, you know. But, again, I'm, I'm sure there's probably variability in those statistics. Uh, and there are just so many other things that affect weather patterns, and it's not, just not about, uh, you know, El Nino or La Nina. There are other things in play here, too. Um, but the, the, I guess the overall message I would say is that I don't think we should be thinking that we're going to be out of this drought and the water problems <clears throat> that are upon us anytime soon, at least here in the West. What what, what 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 scares you the most in the next two to three years, Chris? Um, I'm I'm I think it's that you know we had uh, we had snow in the mountains and they really thought that that snowpack was going to melt and put water in the reservoirs and the snowpack melted but the water didn't show up in the reservoirs. And this is something that's new, relatively new. And so our modeling, you know, there, I'm sure there are modelers out there now trying to figure out how they can, you know, get, make predictions that are, you know, more accurate because that obviously uh, was a problem. I worry that it's going to be another dry year and that water's not going to show up and our reservoirs are all like really, really drained. Um, they're really <laughs> almost scraping the bottom. And what's unusual is, you know, in terms of Southern California, they always felt, well, if there's a drought on 
one system, the other system doesn't have a drought. And generally through, you know, the last several decades, that's that's held true. Um, And Southern California's water is about, my understanding, about 30% coming from the Delta in Northern California, about 30% 30 coming from the Colorado River, and about 40% of groundwater and and other storage things. So, you know, if there was this security in a sense that, well, we have this diversification of imported water and generally there's not a drought in Northern California and a drought in the Colorado River at the same time. But if you look at the drought map, you will see that there is a drought covering in the entirety of the western U.S. So my worry is that it's it's not going to end, and it's going to be very, very painful because it doesn't look like there's much carryover storage in the reservoirs at all. As a matter of fact, they shut down the power um, at the Hyatt Power Plant, which is Lake Oroville, which is the largest uh, reservoir on the state water project, and it's never been shut down before, and they had to shut it down due to low levels. So <laughs> what what does this mean, you know, if if we don't get much more, uh, wa- if we don't get much water next year, it's really going to be very, very difficult. I heard, more I, so than this year. I heard there uh, get the abandoned boats out of the Delta. I guess there's lots of them because it's so low. Oh, well, you know, uh, <laughs> if you if you think about the Delta, what we're talking about is 1,300 miles of levees. Um, I think it tra- that translates to about 700 miles of waterways throughout this, this area. And, you know, people who have boats, sometimes, it, you know, it's kind of hard. To get rid of a boat, I think for some people, uh, much easier to get rid of a car, perhaps. Um, and so the Delta has become a convenient dumping ground for for boats. Or if boats get untethered or something at a marina, whatever, they get lost. Um, they just float out, and who knows where they go. I think, you know, I'm sure sometimes there's accidents. There's certainly intentional strandings. There there are uh, well-meaning but really unprepared people uh, that bring vessels out into the Delta. Um, There's actually, there's actually a problem. There's a, you know, the Delta is a great place to live if you want to be away from from you know people and a lot of laws and whatever and so there is a certain town within the delta that actually has a bit of a a mess problem actually because uh, it's very remote out there and the community of people that engage in such activity and they tend to buy boats like they'll have the government will repossess boats and will just sell them to anybody, even like for a buck sometimes. And so you have these people that buy boats to cook up their mess, um, and they're you know, these these are big boats, not really quite waterworthy out there, and they get stranded. And I mean, it's it's a huge 
huge problem. And it's unfortunately the Delta is a great place to dump the stuff you don't want. Right? You don't want well, the couch there. Go down that road and dump it. And it's you know it is a problem. And the boats are a problem. And there's very there aren't very many resources for removing boats. It's not just a problem in the Delta. It's actually a problem all over the United States. Uh, you know, boats are sold with, you know, stickers. So theoretically, you could track back a boat to its owner and make them pay for that cleanup. But that's a that's a lot of man hours and man time. And chances are, when you find that person, they're not going to be able to pay anyway. So, you know, it's been a big problem. So. I'm really happy to see that they have some funds in the state budget to start removing these these old boats. I mean, they they leak all sorts of crap into the water. Um, you know, they're eyesores. Uh, there's a you know sometimes they even float down the middle of you know the river and the, the channels where it's actually a hazard to people who are out there boating. You, you know you. <laughs> have a boat floating down you you know you don't want to hit that so you know so yeah I, i'm glad to see that they're working on that you know well chris i'll tell you we've got to be optimistic sometimes about about precipitation and rain because look what happened in 2017 it was going to be a reasonably standard year and that's the year that oroville you were just mentioning lake oroville that Oroville filled up to record capacity in such a short time that nobody was prepared to do that. It overspilled, overran uh, the spillway and the dam wall and all that damage to the spillway that happened. I mean, the good thing is the spillway is fixed now, but that, you know, that was, uh, that was a, a, a year with a lot of rain and it was unexpected. It, it was. And a lot of that had to do with uh, atmospheric rivers. You know, we talk a lot about that out here in California. And those atmospheric rivers, how many of them that we get that hit the state really impact our our water supply. And that was a year where I think something like 27 atmospheric river storms hit the state. It was, I think, I do believe it was a record um, in terms of how many that came. This last year, Oregon and Washington got all the atmospheric rivers. Uh, there were all sorts of alerts, but they, they all went much farther north. Uh, because, you know, this. I, well, I took physical geography in college, and the hardest unit by far was the weather unit. Because, you know, there's so many factors in the atmosphere, and this is nothing that you can really see. Right, but it's you know so just you know you just got to know that the Earth, you know, weather and climate systems is much more than El Nino and La Nina and atmospheric rivers, um, mm-hmm. because you know in that in that instance, you know, there were other forces that pushed all the atmospheric rivers away from California, um, and these are it's. You know, I'm sure they will be studying why these these things form. You know, there's other concerns about uh, currents changing in the Atlantic, and if certain currents change, 
what that means to the weather in certain parts of the world, like England. Wow. Well, I think, saw that. Do you, do you think? Do either of you believe that that's a recurring thing that, or it's a, a cyclical thing that we're that we're seeing, and that you know, or, or I wish we we can go back hundreds or thousands of years if we could, could have tracked all of this to know is that going to happen again? Are we going to see a, a heavy uh, a heavy uh, rainfall? Like we did back a couple of years ago, as Chris was just mentioning, and Mr. Davey was mentioning, you know, you know, the spillway. How much water do you think we lost? Was there a way to save it instead of trying to get it out to a bay area or something? You know, to a to a bay. Uh, yeah. Should should we build stuff for the future? Should we believe that uh, it could happen again? Uh, that it's going to be a whole bunch of rain or precipitation, and 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 we're not prepared for it. Well, I do think that. What's going to happen is we're moving towards a time where we're going to have more extreme weather events. I mean, you see that in the last couple of years. We're having it all over the place, not just California. And I think we can plan for that. It's not completely unprecedented. You know, we like to think of we like to think of the world as this solid thing that isn't going to change. That mountain is there. That mountain will not move. But the truth is, mountains do move and all sorts of things happen on the planet. One of the most fascinating stories to me is that, you know, there's a magnetic core at the at the middle of the Earth, right? And, which means make north where north is and south where south is. And every so often in the history of the Earth, going back millions and millions of years, those magnetic poles reverse. That's correct. And and it actually is moving. It's moving to still these days, and it's actually moving faster than they've ever seen it move. And we may actually experience what happens when the Earth's magnetic poles reverse. I have no, I mean, I don't think anyone knows what that would actually mean to everything in the world. But yes, the world. The world is changing. It always has been changing. It will continue to change, um, you know, and somehow we have to prepare for this. I think, I do think we have to sort of let go of what we know, of, of what we, you know, things we de- that we think we can depend on in, in terms of the historical data set, and we need to start looking forward in a predictive manner. I don't think what has exactly happened in the past going forward is going to continue. We can expect to see it in the future. So we're going to have to move from relying on history to tell us where we think it's going to go and try to be more predictive. And this is actually a big thing that they talk a lot about in the science world, especially in terms of the Delta. You know, we need to start being able to say, well, if we do this, we think this might happen with, you know, be able to say that with some sort of, you know, certainty to it. And, you know, they use all these very sophisticated modeling tools that that can model all sorts of things. So they're really working towards, you know, getting there. Uh, but that is the, I think that's the new frontier of science is moving from relying on the past to predict the future, or a concept they call stationarity, into trying to be more predictive. Stationarity no, 2K. We thought Y2K yeah. was bad. This is 
stationarity too soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, but well, you know, I think with artificial intelligence and all these new algorithms that Noah and everybody else is working on, that that is the future. I mean, look how much better they are today than what they were before, fifteen twenty years ago. They say it's going to rain yeah. today, and it never. I mean, now now they're 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 much more accurate today, and I think science is going to help out with the algorithms. But again, just one little one little number that's wrong will change the whole formula. So you never know, but it keeps getting improved, and I guess they, it learns by itself every time it makes a mistake. Well, and also too, we we as humans learn, you know. And they say really the only way that you're going to be able to learn to do better predictions is to start making predictions, and then start checking, you know, your your results against your predictions and starting to hone those in. Um, we did it with science. I mean, not with science. I'm sorry, with weather. Remember, in 1950, they couldn't tell you for sure if it was going to rain tomorrow or not. But no. uh, nowadays, they're at least fairly sure. No, you're exactly right. You know, one of the things I usually tell my staff, my engineering staff, when when we have them all together, is you know you can't walk on water if you don't get out of the boat. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I yep. Mean, same thing. You got to start making the predictions. Well, we're working on our commercial break, Chris, and we do appreciate you coming on and giving us a, a great insight and update on what's happening around California. Uh, just for our listeners, if you really want to know more about water every single day and all the insights, please go to bathingsnotebook.com and you can become a subscriber. You can become a sponsor. It's a great way to get uh, uh, all your all your water news every single day when you turn on your computer. It's right there, and it's a great, great source for information. So, Chris, thank you very much. We'll be back with you next week. And uh, do well, stay safe, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Take Good care, evening, Chris. everybody. All right. All right, we're going to take a little break for our commercial, and we'll be back with our special feature. And we'll, we'll be ready to go in about two minutes. This is 1050 AM KCAA Loma Linda and 106.5 FM Yucaipa. They love you. They love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers is a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers, and you can get your plants delivered direct, even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project, so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock. Because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. Are you presently part of the irrigation industry as a worker or business owner? Do you want to learn how you and your staff can boost your knowledge and productivity? Then you should check out Irrigator Technical Training School. Irrigator Tech is the leading source of quality instruction serving all facets of the irrigation industry. Their courses provide a basic, easy to understand approach that raises the skill level, competency and professionalism of landscape and irrigation personnel through practical education and services. 
Irrigator Tech combines classroom and real-life hands-on training, leading to a well-recognized certification that both customers and employers demand. Irrigator Tech specialized courses can help you quickly become a certified irrigation auditor or a certified installer, repair, maintenance, or backflow technician. Courses also include certificates in smart water application or becoming a certified tree worker. Most importantly, all certifications are state recognized and Irrigator Tech offers annual renewal classes to help keep your certification up to date. So whether you work in California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, or Arizona, there's an Irrigator Tech class near you. For more information on how to jumpstart your career, call Irrigator Tech toll-free 866-614-1755 or visit them on the web at irrigatortech.com. That's toll-free 866-614-1755 and on the web at irrigatortech.com. K-C-A- all right, so welcome back to the second half of the Baltimore show with uh, Chris Robbins. I hope everybody is having a good day. Um, I know a couple of weeks ago we uh, we had some uh, recording that we, we and I had actually sent in the recording, and so they played the other other one. Uh, but we wanted to play something a little dirty today, and this is about Southern Nevada water and poop and with wastewater. And it was an interesting story. It kind of got my attention because of the, the name of it. My grandkids laughed when they heard about that. They thought it was going to be something different, but it isn't. Um, but we, uh, we we caught up with uh, Bronson Mack from Southern Nevada Water and uh, one of the sidekicks, Crystal, and he brought a guest on on, on their show, which was really, really interesting about uh, – poop, and the sewer system. So take a listen to this. I think you'll appreciate that there's more to poop than you would know about. Hey, Crystal, how are you today? I'm good, Bronson. How are you? I am hanging in there, you know, just continuing to muddle through uh, pandemic conditions, as we all are. I feel like we might be on the home stretch. Can you believe we've been doing this for about a solid year now? I know we are coming up on that one-year mark. It has been a nutty year for everybody. And it's also been kind of nutty, I guess, sort of in the water world. You know, when this pandemic first started, there were some concerns about how it was transmitted. Yeah, I think, you know, in the beginning, it was kind of scary. There was so much information coming out. And this is obviously completely new for most Americans that, I, you know, I don't know that anybody's still alive that had to deal with the pandemic. What was that, 100 years ago? And it was, there was just a lot of information. But one thing that has always been consistent for us is that we've known from the very early start of this that COVID does not show up in our drinking water supply. And that is a very important thing. In fact, we are going to talk a little bit about COVID. We're going to talk a little bit about water, mostly on the wastewater side, because today here on the Water Smarts podcast, we are going to be joined by Dan Garrity, Principal Research Laboratory Scientist, and Katarina Papp, postdoctoral researcher for the Southern Nevada Water Authority. They have been working on identifying and researching COVID in wastewater. We're going to hear from them today. Dan and Katarina, welcome to the Water Smarts podcast. We are so happy to have you here with us today. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. I, I, you know, this is this is a really interesting topic. It's something that is touching every single Southern Nevadan as we all are dealing with this pandemic. 
Dan, I'd like to start with you. You know, when this pandemic first hit and we started to become aware of the coronavirus in 2020, you and Katerina and the water quality research team for the Southern Nevada Water Authority immediately started checking water supplies, checking samples to ensure that the virus, the coronavirus, was not present in our water supply. And more particularly, was not present in our treated drinking water supply. So can you just kind of give us a little bit of background there when that pandemic first hit? What what was your research like at that point? Sure. So the the water system here in, in Southern Nevada is one of the most advanced out there. So we were never particularly worried that it was going to make it into our finished drinking water, but we always want to be certain that it's not going to challenge our system or, or make it through. And so a lot of the research that we do in research and development here at SNWA is to address these emerging challenges. So something that we didn't know about before the pandemic hit was the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And then once we realized that that virus could wind up in the species of infected individuals that immediately jumped on our radar as something that we wanted to look for in different water types throughout Southern Nevada. So our wastewater, our source water, and our drinking water to make sure that it wasn't going to be an issue for uh, public health. Dan, SNWA looks for viruses and other contaminants in our water supply. That's just part of the general research that we're doing on a daily basis. We pull nearly 57,000 water samples each year. We run more than 300,000 tests on those samples. So looking for viruses is something we're equipped to do. Did you have to change your testing processes for this particular virus? Right. So we can basically look for anything here at the Water Authority. So with the the expertise we have on, on the personnel side and the equipment that we have, any chemical, any microorganism that's in water, we can look for and we can find it. And so we were set up to do the same type of research. It's just that we change the targets based on what's the question of the day, essentially. And so when the pandemic hit, we were able to look in the literature, figure out what we needed to do to change our methods to look for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Then once we figured that out, we could use basically the same methods that we use for other viruses to look for this pandemic virus. And when you're looking for that virus, Dan, and you identified that it wasn't present in water at Lake Mead, it wasn't present in the finished drinking water, but you did find some signals of that virus in raw sewage. Is that correct? That's right. So the signal that we see is its genetic material. So a virus is basically genetic material. So people commonly know about DNA. This is actually an RNA virus. So that genetic material is encapsulated by a protein. And then for SARS-CoV-2, that protein is surrounded by this lipid layer. And so that's basically all a virus is. And so what we look for is just that middle part, that genetic material, as an indication that that virus was one there in feces and then ultimately wastewater. And so when we look for that, it doesn't really tell us that the virus is infectious. And more importantly, the research that's come out shows that in fact, the, the virus that we find in wastewater is not infectious. And so we, when we find that signal, we're finding the remnants, like the carcass of that virus in the wastewater. And from the testing that we did, we only find it really early in wastewater treatment. And so one of the great things in terms of public health is that this fragment, this virus signature gets wiped out really early in wastewater treatment. So it doesn't even make it through the wastewater treatment train. And in Southern Nevada, that treated wastewater generally goes into Las Vegas wash. And so by removing it early in wastewater, treatment, that's just another layer of confidence that it's not going to affect our water supply. 
So basically, you're taking raw sewage samples and you're looking for the genetic markers that are associated with the coronavirus, but not the virus itself. You're not seeing necessarily live virus in those samples. And then you're testing the wastewater after it has gone through the wastewater treatment process, and you're finding that those genetic markers of the virus are gone. That tells us then that our wastewater treatment process is effective at doing what it intended to do, which is treating that wastewater. So, Katerina, why are you looking for the virus in raw sewage? I mean, is our testing process normally just looking at drinking water in Lake Mead, right? Not necessarily looking at raw sewage on a on a normal water quality type of process. Yes, that is correct, because we want to make sure that the finished water is clean. And so that is the main target of all the analyses. However, regarding the SARS-CoV-2, we know that it's primarily a respiratory virus, right, that's causing COVID-19. And researchers have found that its genetic material ends up in human feces. And because it's present in the feces, it's going to end up in wastewater. And that was one of the major reasoning behind analyzing raw sewage, because we knew that the virus should be there. And this was sort of a measure or an estimation of the virus prevalence in a community. We can ask, you know, if it's still present, and if so, then how much this can allow us to make decisions about different mitigation measures and policies. And it's also one way to corroborate the clinical testing data that's happening in the community. So more broadly, we have two groups here at the Southern Nevada Water Authority that do a lot of the testing. So we have our compliance group that deals with a lot of the drinking water regulations and making sure we're complying with those regulations. And then we also have our research and development group. And so when we talk about wastewater, that isn't something that's commonly associated with the drinking water utility, or at least testing that wastewater. But because we have an R&D group here at the Water Authority, it allows us to go beyond what a typical drinking water utility will do. And it allows us to go collaborate with our wastewater utilities to understand the potential connection between treated wastewater discharge to Las Vegas wash and what's going to wind up in Lake Mead, which is our, our drinking water source. And so over the years, we've had hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions at this point in externally funded research on this very topic. And so that's why we do a lot of wastewater research here at the Water Authority. It's fascinating to me. It's it's like you guys are detectives. I mean, really, you're looking for viruses, drugs, chemicals, various things that are really coming from human waste. Is this wastewater epidemiology a new field of study? So it's been around for actually quite a few years. I think back in 1989, Israel set up wastewater-based epidemiology to track polio in its wastewater. But the way it's being used now, it's a relatively emerging field of study, especially in the context of COVID-19. There are some companies like the BioBot, perhaps you have heard about, that were originally using wastewater surveillance to track the use of opioids in our community. And then when the pandemic hit, the researchers in the Netherlands were some of the first ones to actually use wastewater surveillance to identify specifically COVID-19 in their community. And they were, in fact, able to detect the virus or its genetic material in the raw wastewater before the health officials had confirmed any actual cases through clinical tests. It's this ability to find the virus early, even before people test positive through the clinical test, that actually sparked an enormous interest in the wastewater epidemiology field. So that's pretty impressive. You have the ability through this wastewater epidemiology effort to really get an 
early identifier for the concentrations or I guess really the scope of the virus throughout the community. And Dan, when you were studying and kind of beginning to collect these samples of raw sewage, my understanding is is that we were collecting a lot of those samples from Southern Nevada's largest wastewater treatment plant that primarily serves the majority of Clark County within the Las Vegas Valley. But that really is collecting wastewater from like the east end of the valley to the west end and from the north end out to the south end. So it's a very large area that that wastewater treatment facility serves, which I assume would make it pretty hard as you're collecting your samples and doing your analysis to be able to tie back any prevalence of the virus to a specific area of town. You know, I'm thinking back to what they did at the University of Arizona in monitoring some of their dormitories and being able to get an early identifier, as Katerina just referenced there, of the fact that there was a a presence of the virus in their dorms. And then the university took action to mitigate that and prevent the spread. So you can you just explain a little bit about kind of what are the challenges that we see in collecting samples across such a large area and how could that be localized to provide even more efficient data to health professionals? Sure. So when this first happened back in February of last year, we needed to move fast. And so we had a really good collaboration with that really large wastewater treatment plant. Like you mentioned, that treatment plant receives wastewater from about 40% of the community here in Southern Nevada. And so what we found over the, the last year now, essentially we've been doing this, is that that large facility is a great sentinel site. So it really tells us as a whole, how is Southern Nevada doing in terms of infection rate? And so when you turn on the news and you see how many cases were reported in Southern Nevada, by looking at the wastewater at that facility, it really tracks the number of new cases we're seeing on a daily basis. But like you mentioned, it's it's hard to make that actionable. And so that University of Arizona case study is a great example of how as you get more specific, as you really narrow down on a particular community or, or in that case, a particular dormitory, you can get wastewater data and you can have a, a really rapid public health response. So in that particular case, they took sewage samples every day from a, a bunch of different dorms on campus at the University of Arizona. At that first site where they had a hit, they talked about what they were going to do with that information and they, they figured out pretty quickly, we need to go in and we need to do some clinical testing. And so at that point, they organized a rapid response sentence of rapid testing, identified two asymptomatic individuals. So without that wastewater signal, that early warnings response, they wouldn't have known that those people were infected. And so by identifying those asymptomatic individuals, quarantining them, they were possibly able to prevent a larger outbreak in that particular dorm. And so that shows you the power of narrowing in on a more localized location to try to make that wastewater surveillance data more actionable. Wow. And if you are able to do that at the local level on the dorm and prevent that spread from happening within a dormitory environment, you are preventing that spread from happening then across the campus environment and therefore preventing that spread across the entire community where that campus is located. I mean, that's pretty interesting to see how localized you can get and the kind of response that can then be implemented in order to help prevent the spread. Exactly. And we can look at that same example on a sewer shed basis. So we can come back to Southern Nevada 
instead of just looking at that really large facility, we've branched out and looked at all of the major treatment facilities in town. And then we've also tried to break down those sewer sheds into smaller areas. So by looking at a smaller population, we can understand if population A or B has a higher infection rate, communicate that to the local health department so that they can possibly mobilize and do something about that to try to prevent the outbreak on a larger scale. Become a plant master and save when you apply for the Southern Nevada Water Authority's Water Smart Landscapes Rebate Program. You'll not only save money on your monthly water bill, but the SNWA will give you a cash rebate of $3 per square foot of grass replaced with Water Smart Landscaping. The program has saved our community billions of gallons of water by upgrading nearly 200 million square feet of lawn. Now that's plantastic. Get rid of the grass and make the switch today. For more details, visit snwa.com. SNWA is a not-for-profit water agency. As we're recording this podcast here in Nevada and really across the country, the vaccine is finally getting out to communities and to the people. And we're finally seeing some of the cases drop. We're not completely out of the woods yet, but other countries like Australia have been successful so far at beating the virus. And they're using wastewater to help monitor the virus in a post-pandemic world. Katerina, can you explain to our listeners what they're doing specifically there? Australia is actually a great example of how we can use uh, wastewater-based epidemiology in a post-pandemic phase. So back in uh, November and December of last year, they have gone several weeks without uh, confirmed cases of the coronavirus. And they were actually very good at using pretty strict public health measures. And they had wide compliance uh, among the people to reduce the spread of the virus. And so this really helped them to avoid the third wave that we have all experienced here in, in the winter. As the virus then dissipated, the Australia used the wastewater surveillance to rapidly identify and respond to any re-emergence of the virus. And so at first they got pretty consistent non-detects in their sewage water. But then in early December, the virus showed up in raw sewage in, uh, for instance, the Batemans Bay area and also in the Apollo Bay. And then the officials, they were able to launch a pretty strong advertising campaign in that area and strongly recommended that symptomatic and asymptomatic individuals get tested, you know, and reminded them to stay safe and healthy and to not to pretty much uh, let their guards down. And so again, by, by using WBE, they were able to find the virus before it really spread among the among the population. So this uh, Australia example is basically our future, hopefully our future. We haven't seen non-detects since last year. So we've consistently found SARS-CoV-2 in basically every wastewater sample we've collected since June uh, of last year. And so this Australia example shows what we should see in the coming weeks. So as we get to a point where we start seeing non-detects, we could implement something like Australia is doing where we get non-detects, all of a sudden we see a spike and we can send out a message to the, the broader community and say, hey, we found the signal in this particular area. Make sure that you're you're wearing your mask, you're, you're being vigilant with hand washing and so forth because there are infections out there. And so that's something that I hope to see in the coming weeks as our infection rate drops and then hopefully our, our wastewater will follow suit and start dropping as well. So, so yes, we are not quite there yet, but 
in the past four to five weeks, we have seen a considerable drop in the number of cases and a slow decline in the concentration of the virus in wastewater. So not only that the actual number is decreasing, but looking at specifically the data, the quality of the data that we are getting is also worse. So both of these are a good indication that we are on a slow but steady decline. And it's actually amazing to me. Like, so we've been doing this for a while. I have confidence in this in the data. But every time Katerina, every week she sends me the data and I look at it, and it, it amazes me that it works because we see the drop in cases, and then Katerina will send me the data and we see the drop in the wastewater. And it's just remarkable at how those two very different data sets align. And so it really shows you the power of wastewater surveillance in, in getting that that window into the community. Hey, Dan, are you seeing the wastewater numbers dropping before you're hearing about the case numbers in the community dropping? It's hard to say. Um, I, I would say early on when testing was much slower, I think you were more likely to see that. That's where you had a lot of reports like in the Netherlands, in Connecticut, they were showing this up to two weeks in advance. I'm not sure we can say that with our data. I, I think it's pretty aligned in terms of timing. So when you see the cases, the wastewater is kind of dropping at around the same time. And I think that's something that'll be refined as we understand how people are shedding the virus and feces and the testing lags that there are. So once we have a better picture of what's happening, we'll be able to figure out which was happening first. But I don't think it's really as strong as a warning signal now because testing has improved on the clinical side so much as the pandemic progressed. So that's amazing. I mean, through this wastewater epidemiology research that has taken place, we're able to get an early warning signal, seeing the concentrations of this virus. Hopefully we get ourselves to a point where we see those concentrations extremely low for an extended period of time, and we're able to continue this work to, again, provide that early warning signal should we see that virus concentration increase. Dan, can you tell us some other ways in which wastewater surveillance and wastewater epidemiology can help to stop the spread of other viruses or provide other useful data to communities? The prime example right now is all the discussion about variants. So you have the UK variant that was kind of first on the scene, then the South Africa variant, then the Brazil variant. So there's all these variants that are starting to emerge. And that's one of the problems as the virus spreads, you have people who are producing billions of copies of this virus. And every time you, you're creating a new virus, you have the potential for that virus to make a mistake as it's packaging itself. And that mistake winds up being one of these mutations. Uh, and so you have the potential for these more infectious variants to start popping up. And so the way that wastewater surveillance can be used is that wastewater is a pooled sample from up to thousands or tens of thousands of people. So instead of going out and looking at individual clinical samples and sequencing thousands of clinical samples, we can go out and we can sequence one wastewater sample to see what strain of that virus or, or what strains more, more accurately are circulating in a community at, a, at any given time. And so that's something that will really pick up in the coming weeks as people transition just from going from what's the concentration to what are the strains that are in this wastewater so that we can know whether that UK variant is already here or that, that South Africa variant is already here. Another example that I can give you is school reopenings. And so we saw that with the University of Arizona example where they were looking at dorms, but now we have elementary schools that are starting to open here in Southern Nevada. And so another way that this can be used is to monitor sewage that comes from elementary schools and to know whether there are active infections in that elementary school uh, as certain schools reopen. 
open. So that's, I think that's something that's going to start popping up, not just in Southern Nevada, but elsewhere across the country to understand the role that schools might play in spreading COVID-19. Wow. So it really is more efficient to be able to do kind of this pool sampling and this pool testing through the wastewater because you're getting a much broader view of the community and whether or not there might be variants there. Otherwise, you'd have to do that on an individual testing basis, which would be relatively inefficient. Hey, Katarina, what are some of the things that this research has been able to confirm in Southern Nevada? So the sequencing is very important and currently it is being done by Dr. O at UNLV. On our side here, we are using a slightly, so we are using a different method that doesn't allow us to specifically identify the whole sequence of the whole genome of the virus, but rather just short targets. And by doing so, we can quantify those short targets. Now, a drawback of the of, of our approach and of using the WBE in general and of the pooled sample is that we cannot really piece those targets together. So we get a bunch of different reads that some of them would be associated with the UK variant, some of them could be associated with the South African variant or the US variant. But it turns out that, for instance, a UK variant needs to have two mutations that we can detect separately, but not necessarily together. So getting the two mutations doesn't mean that they come from the same genome and therefore indicating that the UK variant is indeed here. Nevertheless, it's a lot cheaper to sequence and analyze a pooled sample like we are getting from wastewater as opposed to clinical samples. I'm assuming that the higher the concentration of the virus's genetic markers in the sewage samples, the higher the infection rate in the community. Dan, what is SNWA doing with the data it's collecting? So when we get the data each week, I, I first send out a kind of an informal update to our wastewater partners so that they know what we're finding in the samples that they're providing. And then we also have contacts at the Southern Nevada Health District. And so for the past few months now, we've been sending updates to SNHD and breaking it up by sewer shed so they can see what we're seeing on the wastewater side and whether that aligns with what they're seeing on the case side. There have been examples where we have certain sewer sheds where the wastewater concentration is higher than we think it should be based off of where the case data is. So I think going forward, one of the powerful aspects of this is that we can hopefully increase confidence in this type of data set so that Southern Nevada Health District can, or and other public health agencies around the country, around the world, can use this in an actionable way. And so when we see those discrepancies, when we see the higher wastewater concentrations, then they could potentially send out a, a mobile testing unit to those locations in a future pandemic. Because unfortunately, we're probably going to be in this type of situation, hopefully years in advance, but it's probably going to happen again. And so we need to refine this tool so that we can implement it much more quickly this time than what we did here. But also going forward, like we had mentioned earlier, there's potential to implement this for not only SARS-CoV-2, but basically any type of disease that you can have within a community, particularly ones that, that are shed in feces. But e even something like influenza, people will shed that in their feces. And so even on a normal year, we can look for influenza in wastewater and provide that type of information to the health district so that they know that there's a spike in flu in one area versus another and potentially respond in that way. That's so interesting. In one of your research papers, you note that anthropologists study artifacts left behind by people of the past. But by studying raw sewage, scientists, utilities, public health professionals, and policymakers are turning to sewage as a window to society. What do you mean by that? 
It basically it means that poops don't lie. So whatever we do as people, it's going to wind up in our wastewater. And so that wastewater is that window into society. So it's what diseases are, are being circulated within a community. What type of behaviors are people having in a community? And so we talked about illicit drugs in the past. We had done a, a Super Bowl study about 10 years ago now where we looked at the population of Southern Nevada and how it changes during a special event like that. So during the Super Bowl, our population can increase as much as 15% here in Southern Nevada as people visit the city, go to casinos and gamble on the game and, and have a good time. But those behaviors are reflected in the wastewater. And so we can see during a special event like that, we can see illicit drug use goes up. And then on a normal weekend, that illicit drug use goes down. And so that's just another example of that window into, into society. Specifically for, for COVID-19, I can share this story about my friends. So we have this chat group. And so since this started, we've been talking over chat since we haven't been able to see each other in person. And so they've been following what I've been doing with wastewater surveillance, and they've seen some of the news stories. Pretty early on, when I was telling them that you can find this virus in feces, they were more than willing to provide samples of their own. First, they wanted to drop it off at my doorstep, and I told them that this was not how it worked. And then they decided, okay, well, we can send him samples by flushing it down the toilet. And so every time that they would flush the toilet, they would send me a text message saying that they were submitting samples for our research. And so then I'd be able to go collect those samples at the treatment plant. Katerina would analyze that. And then I could send the data back to them and tell them what it looked like. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you got some pretty funny friends, Dan. <laughs> they, they at least think they are. I hope they weren't sending pictures. No, no pictures, <laughs> thankfully. Well, I got to tell you, it's good to hear that your friends are uh, are helping with wastewater surveillance. I suppose that every Southern Nevadan uh, who was using the facilities at one time or another has the potential to contribute to this important research effort that is taking place on a community-wide basis. I think on that note, we will thank Dan. Thank you so much for your time. Katerina, thank you for all that you had to share on the efforts and the work that you are doing from a wastewater surveillance standpoint, helping to keep this community safe, sharing that information with our partners. And I guess we just really need to give a nod to our other partners that are associated with this research, the wastewater treatment agencies that really partner with us and help us acquire these samples. That's the city of Las Vegas and the city of North Las Vegas. We can't forget about the city of Henderson and the Clark County Water Reclamation District, as well as the city of Boulder City. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but we've also got partners with UNLV and the Southern Nevada Health District. We are appreciative of all of their support and all of their efforts on this important work that Dan and Katarina are doing. Thanks so much again for joining us on the Water Smarts Podcast. And thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to share our research with the community. Yeah, do you think uh, it's pretty interesting? Do you think that's some um, bigger basis around the country? I think so. All right, we're up against the news hour here, buddy, I think. Absolutely. So, the thing we say every week is keep, don't keep, keep your friends blue. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. Mm -hmm.